Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Lecture 4, Chapters 4 and 5, 4 being the Keeper of the Keys, and 5 being Diagon Alley. So, as we discussed in the last chapters, in the last lecture, there was a giant crash at the door, and all of a sudden the problem that had been building up, the dragon that had not been recognized, shoots through the door and cannot be ignored anymore, and has given physical manifestation in the person of a giant or rather, as we will at some point learn, a half-giant, Hagrid, Rubius Hagrid, that is. And Hagrid, recall, is the same person riding a flying motorcycle who first delivered Harry and developed some affection for him. He seems to be a rather agreeable fellow and does love uh, nurturing all sorts of dangerous um, creatures. He is also the games keeper at Hogwarts and will at some point be a professor. So, he is something of a psychopomp that he brings Harry into the word, world of the Muggles. Will also take Harry um, out from the world of the Muggles um, into the world of magic, and he will start to introduce him to magic through learning, which uh, it may suggest that something like the fact that we can exchange information through language, through spells that we tell to each other, is akin to magic because it transforms how we perceive the world and thus transforms the world around us. And so. Rubius Hagrid comes in like a hermetic figure, Hermes, to now uh, initiate Harry into the next part of his life, the second or rather third part of his life, if you consider while he was a baby um, uh, and defeated Lord Voldemort the time before. Uncle Vernon attempts to stand against Hagrid with his gun, but uh, the, that technology has seemed to be worthless against the might of Hagrid and his primordial force, his Briarian Force, like the 50-headed, 100-armed uh, Hecatacheron, our 100-handed creature, the, one of three brothers who helped to save Zeus, according to Homer, when Athena, Hera, and Poseidon all bound him at one point. And so he, as, as the dominant hierarchy or the representation of it, can, must have unbounded strength, and they attempted to bound him, and, well, then they suffered the consequences which actually Homer does not go into. And so Hagrid sits down and makes himself at home and starts to make some sausages. And something about him is he is large and has a large overcoat, and his large overcoat seems to be made of nothing but pockets, which means he's full of surprises. Now, everything that he comes up with is a surprise. Everything about him is new. He has mice in his pockets. He has an owl in his pocket that he will send a letter back to um, the Zeus or old wise man or God the father figure Albus Dumbledore and say that he has gotten to Harry and something interesting about the letter is it uses no personal pronouns. He does not say I. He just says got as if he is part of sort of uh, as if he is part of the godhead of Dumbledore, as if he, like Hermes and Zeus, are part of the same primordial forces, but simple, simply different aspects of that. And it, insofar as the magical world is a unity, and insofar as um, those who work at the institution make the institution what it is, and are part of the same, and uh, have the same mission, then that seems to be true. And so, Hagrid sits down and starts to, uh, first he wishes... Harry a happy birthday and furnishes again from his coat and one of his many pockets a chocolate cake that says Harry uh, happy birthday Harry and that's the first time Harry has ever seen anything like this and been given a personal cake and a personal gesture and had somebody yell down his oppressor uh, Vernon Dursley in front of him this is 
already been the best birthday of Harry's life, as far as we know, um, besides perhaps the first one. And so Hagrid says, call me Hagrid. And he says, I'm the keeper of the keys at Hogwarts. And something interesting about that, I made a couple connections both to Olympus and Heaven earlier, as her earlier, but in Dante's Divine Comedy, the keeper of the keys for the Paradiso is Peter, uh, St. Peter, the rock of the church who betrayed Jesus three times before the cock crowed, showing that the nature uh, that the most reliable thing about human nature is that it is capable of betraying itself. And so that's something one should know. The two keys that Peter has are a golden key and a silver key. The golden one is, represents power or competence. The silver, discernment, or the capacity to reflect and think and understand what is going on around one and what one's own place within that is. And so Hagrid here as a psychopomp or a liminal figure, a figure who passes between worlds like St. Peter is going to introduce Harry into the unknown, but the optimistic and good aspects of it. Uh, though, interestingly enough, that will not be by going up into a heavenly-like realm, but going down into a Hades or hell-like realm in uh, the dungeons of Gringotts. And in fact, there we will see that Hagrid does have two keys, um, though one of the vaults does not require a physical key. Perhaps the, the puzzles which are not physical are therefore the toughest puzzles because they require the most intangible keys, which are the hardest to find because they're invisible, of course. Hagrid also starts to connect Harry back to his past. Not, uh, not only his wizarding past, but his direct past and his father and his mother. He says, uh, he says that you look just like your dad and that I knew you as a baby. And I, I believe, I don't know that he says it here, but I know that it will be a comment made by Snape that he has his mother's eyes. And uh, so, so Hagrid is making a physical connection between Harry who sort of felt like an orphan his whole life um, uh, with him and his parents. And then, and then he's going to tell him more about his parents and how they died. And then he's going to show Harry the treasures of his parents in the Gringotts vault. And then he's going to take him to Ollivander's where Harry is going to find out more about the wands of his, his parents. And then later in the story, He'll actually find himself like a lotus eater being entranced by the mirror of Erised. Erised is the word desire backwards and uh, because it's reflected, of course, because it's a mirror um, and it's a reflection of your desires. And so what will be in there will be Harry's parents. And so what it seems that he's longing for, which our entire culture seems to be longing for, is tradition. It's parents, where it comes from. And it wants to know this deeply and uh, and and... And seemingly more than anything, and this is part of the reason why we're doing these lectures now, so that we can all connect with to that which is all truly ours, you might say. And so, Vernon attempts to forbid Harry from going to this school with these freaks, and Lily decides finally to get it off her chest that uh, even though her sister was so weird that her, her parents fawned attention on her, and now in sort of a Freudian nightmare perspective, she, she uh, utterly ignores and condemns uh, Harry as vengeance um, for, for how she felt ignored and potentially shamed for her lack of gifts. Um, 
uh, during her childhood. And so we, we see a, a piece of the puzzle fit together with another one there. And so Hagrid said, will have none of this. He says, what, a, a big muggle like you is going to keep me from taking Harry? And that's that's wonderful scene. Finally, the shoe on the other foot, as it were, that um, now the bully is being bullied by someone far stronger and more competent than he, who is not out of his element as Vernon is right now. Um, we have Lily show her cards for who she is. And, um, well, they've lost the moral high ground utterly now in the theater of this um, in in this particular theater. So Harry reads the letter addressed to him finally. And the letter is also in green ink and has been written, as we suspected, by Professor McGonagall. So we see now that all things have meaning in text and the fact that she had a green cloak or dress on at the beginning of the story was indication of her role here. And so she, like a figure of Athena, Minerva, the goddess of wisdom, now invites Harry into this next stage of his life, his, this stage of his life, which will be marked not only by physical transformation, but cultural transformation as well. He will learn the traditions of the past in order to pave the future as one of the magical folk and as one of the most powerful beings in the universe at that time, um, and so, which will be borne out through the, through the series. And so, the letter says, Harry Potter, you are accepted to this school, and please send an owl to us by July 31st, no later, and that is his, his birthday and our good friend Mr. Westchance's birthday. Um, so, Harry has been invited to a magical school called Hogwarts, and he is finally going to leave this terrible, oppressive muggle family. Hmm. But that news slowly fades as... Harry, as it starts to dawn on Harry that his parents did not die in the way that he thought they died. It comes up that he has been told that his parents died in a car crash. And Hagrid blows up at this and says, James and Lily Potter die in a car crash? They were head boy. They were head girl. No, that could not have happened. And he says, well, I don't know whether I'm the person who should be telling you this, Harry, but your, your parents were killed by he who must not be named. And again, we have a mystery there associated with magic, something not even to be named, sort of like a devilish or God figure, that which is so profoundly either good or, in this case, evil. It, it can, To name it would be not to name it. As they say, as Lao Tzu says, uh, the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. And so... Hagrid explains that he who must not be named, whose name comes out to be Voldemort, who very few people will say that name beyond, say, Harry and Dumbledore. Harry as the hero, Dumbledore as the figure of the divine. And Voldemort was apparently this devil-like figure who was powerful and turned very dark. And during that time, people started to go missing, and we'll soon find out that there were three unforgivable curses that he used, and that people went to his side out of greed, who were Slytherins, and we'll find out what that means soon. Uh, it's one of the houses at Hogwarts, and people also went to his side due to weakness of character as well. They were f afraid, and they, uh, they started to lose faith in the society and the structure of society which had protected them and raised them up their entire lives. 
And so apparently, or supposedly, Hagrid wonders whether Hogwarts was the only safe place, the school that Harry has now been invited to, precisely because Albus Dumbledore presides as head, headmaster there, and that he was the only person, perhaps, that Voldemort ever feared as a sort of god figure. Hmm. And so how this relates to Harry and his parents is that one night, though they were in hiding, James and Lily were discovered by Voldemort. He finished both of them off in a flash of green light, attempted to finish off Harry, and failed to do so, and thus lost his power and his body, and has sort of vanished since then. And so Harry finds out also in this moment that he is famous, and that his parents are famous, and that they were gifted wizards, and that he comes from extremely gifted individuals. And so he's learning not only... And this is a this is a point that we'll make more when we get to the Gringotts Gringotts vault in Diagon Alley. But he is learning that he has treasures not only genetically in him, because apparently uh, magic, though it does not have to be genetically passed down, because there are uh, magic born there are those who are born with magic who have Muggle parents like Hermione Granger, who we'll soon meet, and of course uh, Harry's mother Lily was born to muggle parents. Well, also, he's learning that he has great cultural gifts that will be given to him, and specifically in the form of calcified work or money. He'll find out that in, in uh, Gringotts, which is the goblin-run vault of treasures of all the magic kind, protected potentially by a dragon, of course, like Smaug from The Hobbit, and uh, the treasure he guards, except for these treasures can be reached, but only if appropriately guided to them, and so it's an underworld. And that's where all treasures are, especially cultural ones, or those with, those, those uh, active, potent force, forces that are now jewels, and the jewels are what? The jewels are stories, stories that we can now share if you're willing to learn them. And so Harry's finding out that he not only has a, a wonderful sort of natural pedigree or good genetics, as one might say, but also a wonderful uh, cultural pedigree and that he'll, he'll actually receive many treasures from his parents, um, not, not only in terms of his, his magical gifts, but also the physical treasure. They, they have many galleons and canuts and silver sickles as well. Um, and actually, that's very interesting after Hagrid banishes the Dursleys back to their, their room after shooting a, a pigtail onto Dudley's butt, which will later be removed in a couple chapters, um, revealing Dudley for what he truly is, um, might be the nature of the curse that was shot at him. Well, um, the next morning when Hagrid or Harry wakes up, there's an owl at the window, and the owl jumps in after delivering, delivering the newspaper, which is the Daily Prophet newspaper, and it seems to be looking around in Hagrid's coat for something. And what it's looking for are five knuts, or, or nuts, which are the sort of pennies of their, uh, the magical folk. And so they have three, they have a trinity of, of, of magical currency denotations. They have the galleon, which is gold, and then they have silver sickles below that, and I believe there are 17 silver sickles 
to one galleon. And so there are nine bronze knuts to one silver sickle, 17 silver sickles to one golden galleon. And so we see there's a tripartite or trinity as or three uh, <clears throat> or triple aspect to the currency in the magical world. Just like with our Olympic medals, gold is the most valuable, galleons, silver, sickles, or uh, like the moon, uh, the, the second most valuable, and just as gold is representative of the sun and solar nature, that which is most powerful, so is that which is silver of the moon, um, lunar in nature or reflective, very similar to Dante's perspective from the Purgatorio on uh, the purpose of the day is to use one's power, to use one's energy to move forward, and then at night to be motionless, but to reflect on the motions of one's day and in order to be most efficient. And so, interestingly enough, <clears throat> about this uh, magical uh, currency system is that, like with so many things in this magical world, it seems to be irrational because uh, 493 knuts to one galleon, very much different from our sort of Romanesque uh, decimal system where we have 100 cents to the dollar, and cents are, in, in fact, come from the Latin word, the Roman word, kentum, which means 100, and so it makes quite a bit of sense. And um, <clears throat> So, uh, a couple other things about the magical world that are sort of irrational. Um, d Harry will find himself on platform nine and three quarters. He'll find out that wands choose wizards rather than wizards' wands. When, assuming that, of course, a wizard would have consciousness, whereas a wand might not. But then perhaps a wand draws one forth into consciousness and is something of a symbol of the archetype of the self or the future place or person you are which draws you into which draws itself into existence through guiding your actions which is fairly complex but seems to be the idea of uh, the relationship between Dumbledore and a Harry if you take him to be the archetypal hero which we will explore as a notion and so but before we get too ahead of ourselves Hagrid mentions that what has made Harry so famous is the fact that his parents were killed by Voldemort. And uh, I had an earlier recording that got cut off, so if, I, if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. Um, and so Voldemort, using what we'll soon find out is called the Killing Curse, um, which is the most evil curse that can be in one of the three banned curses, well, he used that curse, Avada Kedavra, on Harry's father, and on Harry's mother, and then attempted to use it on Harry, but somehow, someway, even though it cast a green light, and that is the, the, the sort of return to nature aspect of Avada Kedavra, of the killing curse, it seems to be green rather than black, and that you return to that whence you came, to mother nature, or something like that, or is an ironic take on green as a symbol of biology or life. Um, and so, when Voldemort used the curse on Harry, somehow, and we'll find out why, and it is actually a reason outside of Harry, extra, extra Harry, um, it's actually due to his mother, but um, when Voldemort used that curse on Harry, it did not work or it backfired. Harry lived and received the mark of the thunderbolt on his forehead and Voldemort became disembodied and vanished. And some now discuss whether he's dead or vanished. That's how far 
away he is. And in fact, we'll, we will meet the current manifestation of him today in Diagon Alley. And so Harry received his great fame through the fact that he survived a curse that no other person could survive, given by a, or cast by a, a, an evil wizard that no other wizard, save Albus Dumbledore, could stand against. And so, again, the mysteries of magic continue to pile up, and Harry finds himself full of mysteries that he did not even know about. He, he, he now finds himself guided by Hagrid, the liminal figure, and I had a chance to talk about this some with Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. West Chance recently. Um, Hagrid's very name, like Hag, like the idea of a witch or someone who exists in culture but outside in nature or between culture and nature or between the world of the magic and the, the mundane or the world of the living and the world of the dead, it, it means something like a, a straddling two bushes. And so something about Hagrid that I, I should mention is that um, he is, as Keeper of the Keys, um, the figure who takes you between worlds. And so just as he drove a flying motorcycle, that is a mixture of the mundane and the magical, of the mechanical and the magical, of the earthly or that which is terrestrial, the wheeled motorcycle, and the celestial or going through the sky. <clears throat> and he himself was banished from Hogwarts but stays on. He himself is half-giant. He is giant and man, and he even has a wand broken in half. It is as if he is torn in half or exists everywhere and nowhere all at once, exists between worlds, and is thus appropriately the one who takes Harry from the magical world to the muggle world and back from the muggle world to the magical world. Again, he reminds me very much of the figure of Enkidu, or the beast man that is the best friend to Gilgamesh, and that he is hairy, he is large, he can be fearsome, but that he is a very deeply loyal friend. And something interesting about Hagrid is that he has both a, a low and a high status at the same time as well, because on the one hand, he seems to be mixed with a, a lower breed of creature, a giant, and has also been expelled from his school, so doesn't have the formal schooling of all his compatriots. But on the other hand, he has the trust of Dumbledore, sort of like St. Peter had the trust of Jesus, though he was so fallen and uh, had betrayed him. And so Hagrid, though socially speaking, might have a, a low status for those various reasons. He, he, in fact, also enjoys the highest status, which is high regard or trust by the most powerful figure in the magical world. And so when it comes to whether or not Hagrid should be entrusted with dangerous missions like caring for Harry or caring for the Philosopher's Stone, um, which we'll soon talk about in the Gringotts Bank, well, he is certainly the man for the job. And so Diagon Alley, Chapter 5, officially. Let's go. The storm has cleared. And so as we mentioned before, 
Hagrid represents or takes on a sentient aspect to Vernon's refusing to uh, acknowledge the existence of a problem. And so the problem, like the dragon we mentioned from There's No Such Thing as uh, Dragons, the children's book, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually, bang, kicks through the door. And he kicked through the door, uh, shot Dudley on the butt with a, a tail, gave um, uh, or supervened over Vernon's orders and gave uh, Harry not only a cake at, slash present, but also gave him um, his letter of invitation to Hogwarts and opened the next door of his life for him. And so they wake up the next day, or rather Harry wakes up first with an owl knocking on the window and uh, delivering the Daily Prophet. And this is just one of the many um, new things we're going to experience today. So as Hagrid is a figure of, say, like a, a Hermes or a psychopomp-like figure. What he's going to do is renovelize experience for us. And what does it mean to renovelize experience? It means to look at the world in a new way, uh, to have a new view of the world, indicating that each thing in the world that you used to look at with a certain function has now slightly changed. And now all the objects in the world that you see, because you don't see objects, but you see rather tools and obstacles, um, which has been shown by Sokolov, a Russian neuropsychologist. Um, this means that everything in Harry's world, as represented by going through Diagon Alley, is going to be new. And so he's going to be deeply interested in everything he sees. And so this chapter is going to be very much a hermetic or a bridge chapter because it's going to bridge not only Harry um, from the muggle world into the magical world, but us as well. And so this owl that has been knocking at the door in a messenger-like fashion brings a newspaper called the Daily Prophet. So it, it doesn't tell you what has happened, but what will happen, I suppose, is the idea behind that. Though it does function very much like a regular newspaper, though it has pictures that move in it, in them, uh, which are very interesting. The figures in the pictures move. This is, a, this is a note that was brought to me by Miss Sarah Miller that rather than having moving pictures like we do, motion pictures or, or movies... Um, all those words indicating motion, they have pictures which move. And so an interesting inversion on our actual way of doing things. And so Hagrid has Harry pay the owl because it requires a tip, and he learns about the monetary system of the, the, um, the magical folk. And then Hagrid takes them into a boat, uses his wand, which is disguised in a pink umbrella poorly, and uh, in order to make the, the oars move um automatically so that uh they can get to shore without expending too much effort and he shares a little secret with harry then since he's not supposed to use magic he says i'd appreciate it if you didn't tell anybody about that and so there's a, a a trust between harry and hagrid and in fact we'll find that it is precisely because of secrets potentially secrets known between albus dumbledore and hagrid that they that they share such trust as as well or it, at least a, a common belief in each other based on a a second common belief you might say and we'll explain that soon so we then find ourselves in a place called the leaky cauldron called uh described as such uh described as uh, a very shabby place for a famous place and uh, outside of the Leaky Cauldron, interestingly enough, people's eyes seem to go from one building to another, totally skipping over it. So only these magical folk, Harry and Hagrid, 
could see this place. Uh, only people who look at the world in a certain way would notice this place as a tool or a, a entryway into a magical place. And so Harry enters there and meets several um, wizards who treat him in a very different way from how he's ever been treated, usually with disgust or derision or just being ignored. But now he's treated uh, sort of messianically like a prophet or like a famous person. And these people, they say, oh my gosh, this is Harry Potter and a Daedalus Diggle. And of course we know Daedalus is a classical name, the one who constructed the labyrinth in which the Minotaur lived and also the doors of Dido's, um, <clears throat> or at least there are images of him constructing uh, the doors of Dido's uh, Temple of Juno in Carthage. And also, he unfortunately is the one who came up with the ability to fly, but lost his son Icarus in the process because of Icarus is not listening to his father's wise advice. And we also then meet one of the professors from Hogwarts, one of the great teachers, and his name is Professor Quirrell. And something interesting about him is that he wears a turban, indicating that he has uh, a different idea of dress and, su and thus um, way of looking at the world than those wizards around him with pointed hats or no hats. In fact, the idea of a turban is the idea of an exotic idea, an idea from afar. And something interesting about that is that he now has a stammer, and he is believed to have that stammer or stutter from having been totally messed up by encounters with vampires and a hag. Again, something that takes you between worlds, like Hagrid. And so, what we know about him is that he now harbors the Dark Lord on the back on the back of his head, and he is hiding that with the turban. But you might also interpret that as the fact that he is now that he now harbors new anomalous ideas is embodying itself in his dress and in other aspects of his life as well. And in fact, he will act murderously towards. Harry at one point in the story, which we'll consider. And so we meet the Dark Lord himself, or the Two-Faced One, that one like Janus, January, God of Doors, without even knowing it, in the very first magical domain we ever go to. And from this location, we go out into the courtyard where we see a brick wall, and Hagrid brandishes his pink umbrella, and counts it three bricks up, two bricks to the side, forming a diagonal. And so we enter Diagon Alley. And so what you must do in order to enter Diagon Alley is notice that which others do not observe and accept the existence of the irrational. Because it was precisely the diagonal that Socrates used to show Mino's slave that he knew not what it was he was talking about in the Mino as a dialogue, Plato's dialogue, but also it was the existence of the diagonal or the proof over rational numbers that gave the Pythagoreans pause or rather a uh, catastrophic question about the nature of their worldview. Because, well, well, why, why is it that the, the alley in which all magical commerce exists, or rather there, we will find out that there is a slightly darker alley adjacent to this one um, soon, um, but not quite yet. We will not quite see all the dark underbelly first, 
But the idea seems to be that just as a diagonal is evidence of the irrationality of numbers or the existence of irrationality in the world, um, so so must so is magic or the recognition of magic in the world the recognition of that which is irrational or that which reason cannot explain or that which cannot be known or is always on the edge of being known and draws one into the unknown forever and so diagon alley seems to be a diagonal because it is based on irrationality in the same way that nature and magic are based on irrationality and so here we have to collect uh, Harry's school supplies, his books, one of which is, of course, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by Nuke Scamander, those recent movies just being released. And um, he has to get his robes and we'll soon meet a boy who goes unnamed but will be named Draco Malfoy, Draco meaning dragon or snake, Mal from Malos Bad, Foy uh, like Feasants or Facio, so uh, Snake Bad Doer, so he's pretty clear what he's going to be in this uh, story. And in fact, he'll figure as like sort of a cane to, uh, to Harry's Abel or sort of a Satan or to, uh, to uh, Harry's Jesus. And so before Harry can buy anything, his animal, his books, his wand, which he'll finish with, he has to go to the bank. And so what is the bank? The bank is a place named Gringotts, which is run by a a host of goblins, and in fact, a goblin named Grip Hook, uh, words indicating a, de a desire to acquire and grab violently, to grip and to hook. Um, he will take Harry through this place, and so the Gringotts as a vault in which the treasures accumulated from the past, with a dragon guarding them which is the rumor, because nobody sees the dragon, because nobody gets to where the dragon is guarding. Um, but we will find out in later books there is, in fact, a dragon down there. So the dragon guards the treasure. So Gringotts is an, a figure of the underworld, just like the Cave of Wonders for Aladdin. And what we'll actually soon find is that not only does Harry go down there and find the wealth of his personal past, his parents, which enriches him, learning about them and who they were and thus learning about himself and giving him the power to have credence or money in the wizarding world he will also learn about the sort of nature of all the past or that which transforms it by going down to to um vault 713 which is an inversion of his birthday 731 and so in that vault hagrid will find like a shabby looking bag and so just like this crummy little lamp, Aladdin says, when he's in the Cave of Wonders, which has the genie or the transformative force, which totally changes his life, the Logos. Well, it's the same thing here because it's just a crummy little bag in this, this ultimate vault, which has no key, but only a goblin can open. And just an interesting thing about another connection between what this Philosopher's Stone or this thing of little worth that is goes so ignored or so easy to pass over, just like the Leaky Cauldron, just like Harry, is that Griphook says that if somebody were to touch this door and not be a goblin, he would be sucked in. And Harry says, well, then how long, how long is it that somebody could stay in here? And Griphook says, well, we check every 10 years or so, and well, what do we know? Well, we know that Harry himself was placed in a dungeon-like place where he was ignored for 10 years. The Dursleys. 
And so there's a very strong connection between them. And in fact, I think the biggest piece of evidence for the fact that this bank, perhaps any bank, is, is a figure of the underworld is the quote on their second pair of double doors that they're warning to thieves. Enter stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed. For those who take, but do not earn, must pay most dearly in their turn. So if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours, thief, you have been warned, beware of finding more than treasure there. And so, uh, more than anything, there's a sense of balance conveyed in this, in, in this quote, that if you wish to seek something here, there may be f more than what you bargain for. You'll find not only good or treasure, but also bad or that which is punishing or that which wish wishes to defend the treasure, like curses and dragons. And also, there's, there's the parallelism, or rather the, the, the discontinuity between taking that which one does not earn as a, as a thief. And so there's a, there's a liminality to it, too, that in coming in here unbidden, one becomes a thief, sort of like Bilbo in The Hobbit. He is not a thief at first, but by the end he is a thief. And so the idea is that in order to increase one's consciousness, one has, or to understand oneself, one must understand the tradition in which one lives. So one must delve down into the unconscious, into the underworld, whether it's in the Odyssey or the Aeneid or the Divine Comedy or the Fairy Queen or Paradise Lost. One, the hero goes down to the place of tradition of, of the past and gathers the information there. But the greatest thing that the, the hero can gather is not just the wealth of it, the first place that Harry goes, but the ultimate wealth, which is the capacity to use the logos, to think clearly in this current situation, to understand one's situation based on the past, but not simply, uh, or in relation to the past, but not simply, um, in a one is not simply attempting to repeat the past by understanding the past or or just know the past for the sake of knowing the past, but one learns about the past in order to make the most effective decisions possible in the present. And so the past is instrumental to the, de the development of the Logos in the same way that an education will be instrumental to the use of Harry's wand or to the production of magic. So is it also instrumental in the production of the capacity to think freely in humans. So perhaps there is a there is a there uh, a parallelism between the capacity to think freely and to do magic. And so after collecting his wealth, Harry uh, then finds himself alone for the first time. He goes, he goes, he's dropped off by Hagrid, rather, um, in a place to have himself fitted. And he finds himself right alongside another young boy, a blonde boy, who we'll find out is named Draco Malfoy, as I said. In this moment, and this is a moment pointed out by my colleague, Miss Sarah Miller, they find themselves, the boys, facing in different directions, but both facing the same future, in a way, not looking directly at each other, and also looking very much like each other, uniform. And so they indicate two different aspects of life, or 
two different paths of life. It's as if they are the same, but their choices from now on forward will govern uh, who it is they are in the world. And so Draco is a traditional spoiled boy who believes that he's going to go house Slytherin and there are four houses at Hogwarts and Slytherin is where all the dark wizards come from and generally where those who are obsessed with power or prestige go. Um, and so he coming from an old wizarding family believes that there should be no muggles or those born to muggle parents at Hogwarts, but Hogwarts is more of an equal opportunity sort of place that judges you by your merits and your competency rather than who your parents are, who they knew, and what they had. And so, very interestingly, um, Draco will, in this series, figure out something of a cane to uh, Harry's Abel, and so where Harry will tend to make the correct choice, though not always, Draco will often enough provide himself as antagonist, though it will not always be that simple. But at this point, they are very, very similar, though they've had very different backgrounds. Draco, of course, completely identifying with his family and their accomplishments and wealth, and Harry uh, being orphaned at a very young age and yet now discovering that he's a hero. And so something interesting is that now that the shoe is on the other foot, now that Harry... Uh, will find himself famous and relatively wealthy. He could comport himself in a way that he has seen before. He could comport himself like Dudley, who is himself sort of like a spoiled brat who gets tons of attention and uh, unearned and uh, has the wealth of his parents uh, uh, completely dedicated to him. And so, but that's something that Harry notices and despises about Draco. He notices that Draco seems to be a quite a bit like Dudley, and that's not the sort of person that Harry wants to be. And so the figure of the hero, the Horus, will not completely identify with the Osiris or figure of tradition, of old blind tradition. And so, well, let's move on now. Hagrid then takes us to the the Ilops Owl Emporium, <laughs> where we pick up a snowy white owl named Hedwig, and Harry has shown that he's somewhat studious now because he's picked this name from one of his books that he bought, The, the History of Magic, and there was a Hedwig witch in there, and so now his, uh, his demon familiar, his white owl figure, sort of demonic figure of spirit for him, will be, um, who will have a prominent place in this series, uh, has been given to him as a gift by this hermetic figure. So just as Hermes gives um, Molly or Moly a black and white uh, plant to Odysseus in order to prevent him from turning into a swine due to the charms of Circe, so does Hagrid as sort of a hermetic figure give um, Harry the capacity to communicate with um, whomever he needs because owls are like text messages in the uh, the wizarding world, and also sort of like smartphones in that they are marks of status. As Hagrid says, everybody wants an owl right now. Um, toads are way out of fashion. And so let's now go to Ollivander's wand shop. Ah, yes, but just before we go, there are a couple other things that uh, Draco brings up that we don't know his name yet. Um, 
uh, in the text, but because of your lecture, you do. And so um, he brings up the existence of Quidditch. Something interesting to note about Quidditch is that it involves the use of four balls. He also brings up the existence of the house system at Hogwarts, which has four houses. And so we'll keep not only the idea of three as a number of special significance, in particular, there are actually three holes through which one can score in Quidditch, um, and, and also the amount of points one gets from catching the golden snitch is a multiple of three, 150. Um, but, um, but also the number four as well. And just something interesting that uh, Draco said that he would rather not go to the school than be a Hufflepuff. The Hufflepuffs are known for being trusting and caring and loyal. And so why he wouldn't want that is because he wants to be in the Slytherin house or those who are well willing to slither through the grass or go beneath the notice of other people and betray them because of their ambitions. And so, so he shows that his nature is one of betrayal or traitorous from the beginning due to his ambitions, due to his goals, whereas Harry is going to embody more the uh, virtue of trust and alliance with his friends. And in fact, um, I made that point in a recent podcast with Mr. Westchance and Miss Sarah Miller about that being why Harry Potter's wand is not as long as Voldemort's, because the length of the wand seems to be connected to the power, just as the magical substance in its core seems to be an important aspect, or the supernatural aspect, just as the physical substance it is made out of, the wood, seems to be its natural aspect. And that, that uh, idea was first rendered to me by Mr. West Chance, and I think it's completely uh, correct. And so... Um, with the contribution about the power made by me, but I think he probably thought that as well. And so the idea will be that if Harry is going to fight this ultimate force of darkness, this Voldemort at some point, shouldn't he be of equal power with him? Well, uh, it depends on how you define power, because even if he does not personally, autocratically, unilaterally have the same power as Voldemort, if he has, say, the power to bond with others or to form trust with others who will then fight alongside him against Voldemort, netting him greater total power, then perhaps the greatest power is trust rather than power itself. That, And perhaps that's the Luciferian um, mistake, that in sharing with those around one, one makes oneself stronger rather than in keeping uh, one's potential or one's talents or one's wealth uh, locked away from them which is an interesting way to see things. And so let's get to Mr. Ollivander's wand shop. Ollivander is described as having a sort of creepy effect on people because he has a sharp way of looking or piercing, where he can he seems to be able to reflect in a lunar way having moon-like eyes, um, uh, forming a bond between him and Albus Dumbledore, who has half-moon silver glasses, well, he seems capable of seeing that which others cannot see, and that is the inner potential of those who come within. He's like an ultimate teacher, or or he is a he is like a figure of the weaver of fates. And in fact, he he is a maker of wands, which means that he he interweaves a magical substance, either a unicorn hair, a phoenix uh, tail feather, or dragon heartstring, a supernatural creature into a physical body the the wood either you or maple or some or holly in some cases in harry's case um uh and with um and makes it a certain length 
And so he, like the three fates, takes the three aspects of existence and weaves them together. And so it's like a spirit, mind, body, or some, or again, another interweaving of three things which makes one idea. And uh, in fact, even the connection of a wand to a wizard then produces focused, uh, spontaneous magic, and magic is itself uh, a creation that is new and unique, also tethered to tradition in that it requires a certain motion that is practiced and traditional incantation or spell or set of words spoken. That point made first by Miss Sarah Miller to me, which I, I find very interesting. And so there's the spell, the wand, and the, or yes, the, the magical effect itself, the wand, and the, um, the user of the wand. And so Ollivander, similarly to Dumbledore, also has that sort of omniscient uh, ability not only to see within somebody, but to remember all things he has seen. And so he remembers every single person and every single wand he has ever given to those people and all the unique aspects of those wands, indicating that just as unique as each wand is, so is each person, as if we all belong to the same species, but like the angels in Thomas Aquinas's philosophy and Dante's epic poem, The Divine Comedy, uh, it's as if we are all a unique species ourselves because of how different we can be and how many different behavioral strategies we can have. And in fact, what we find out is that um, Lily, Harry's mom, had a ten and a half inch long wand, which was swishy, made of willow, and could charm, suggesting that if it's a if one's wand is a representation of one's personality, that she had a tremendously feminine personality, and that she could charm, and that she could bend and be flexible where she needed to, whereas her husband sort of like a more Adam figure rather than Eve, had an 11-inch, a larger wand. Um, it had a little more power, it said. And it had the power to transfigure. And to transfigure means to change the environment around oneself in accordance with one's will. And so, interestingly enough, this, this puts the description of the personalities or the embodiments or representations of the personalities of the, the archetypal mother and father James and Lily, in conjunction with Adam and Eve from Milton's Paradise Lost, because, in fact, in Paradise Lost, Adam is said to have been made for strength, greater strength, more power, and larger, and uh, and also in order to be able to use, um, in order to use the logos, and of course, uh, Eve can use the logos as well. The idea being, however, that he would have to abstractly use his mind in order to manipulate the world, like an engineer does, to spatially reason more. And so, interestingly, uh, elite in the U.S., Canada, and the Swedish, and in Sweden, uh, engineers tend to be something like 85% of the population, tend to be something like 85% male. And so, the Eve aspect of the mom is, or rather, Eve is described as being more beautiful than Adam. And in fact, in Paradise Lost, she first looks upon herself like Narcissus does in a pond and finds herself very beautiful. And then when she first sees Adam, she finds him rather lacking in beauty. And But what's funny about that is that we see here that there is an archetypal feminine personality 
embodied by Lily, embodied by Eve, an archetypal masculine personality uh, that is embodied by James. And so we'll have to see whether Harry is sort of a mixture of the two. But we get a third archetypal personality thrown in there in the figure of Voldemort. So his wand, leading to me believing that length of wand is, the, is where the power comes from, is 13 and a half inches. And one might object that Hagrid's wand was actually 16 inches. But the thing about that is it's been broken in half. And so it's depotentiated in the same way that his lower status depotentiates him in terms of opportunities in the world. And so, though it's led to him as a liminal figure having more and more opportunities than most people in most ways, very interestingly, because he's open to things other people are not because of his unique place in the world and thus unique way of seeing the world. And so his, his wand is effectively actually eight inches um, because it's been broken in half. But So Voldemort's is 13 and a half inches. And something Ollivander says about it is, this wand has done great deeds, terrible deeds, great deeds. And he's, he leaves off saying, if he had known what Voldemort would do, would he have given him that wand? But of course the wand chooses the wizard. And Ollivander is like a figure of fate here. And so now we embark on the quest to figure out which sort of wand Harry should have. And he's a tough customer. In fact, it takes four attempts. Again, the image of four, four houses, four balls in Quidditch, four attempts at getting uh, Harry's um, uh, wand right, very similar to the amount of times that Achaeans will attempt Apollo on the battlefield in the Iliad. And so finally, indicating his nature as an admixture of muggle or muggle-born parent and magical parent as natural and supernatural being as both human but also magical being as uh, both hero or famous person and person who is ignored, person who transcends boundaries. Uh, Harry, Harry receives a wand that is an unusual combination. And so it's holly and phoenix feather, 11 inches, nice and supple, described by Ollivander, and red and golden sparks prefiguring his entrance as uh, a Gryffindor, a courageous lion on a roaring crimson banner, uh, like the rug I'm walking across now. Um, it, uh, Harry is chosen by the wand, and something curious about that wand is that the phoenix who gave his tail feather for Harry's wand, gave another tail feather, only one other. And that is the feather that powers the wand that Voldemort used for such great evil to kill the parents of Harry, thus prefiguring the notion of death and rebirth or the rebirth of a desire for justice or vengeance, just as Voldemort's wand took the life of Harry's parents, so might Harry's wand someday strip the life from Voldemort, if that is the path that he chooses to walk. And so when, when it is said by Ollivander, curious, curious, and then seven golden galleons are paid for this wand, it is very curious. How... The bonds between Voldemort and Harry 
seem more and more inextricable and more and more present in both of their lives. Not only did Harry first lead to the diminishing of Voldemort, but now he finds that he even has a wand that is something of a twin wand, though a lesser twin to Voldemort's. And again, as I said, though perhaps the length of a wand indicates its power, um, in this case, perhaps the power that overcomes evil is not power at all, or rather, like the end of the Odyssey expresses with Zeus ending the fighting once and for all that's been going on since the Iliad, that perhaps better than victory is suing for peace that the capacity for peace is the best way to end war and end conflict. And perhaps that's what we'll see as we continue to read these very rich texts. This has been chapters 4 and 5.